I'd like to say something about the idea of an album, a record album, today, and uh, make some historical comments and some some structural comments about record making in the past. And let me start by saying that I think it's obvious to listeners that the 1940s and 1950s were a period uh, in which talent dominated the, the culture of music production. So you had the great male vocalists like Sinatra and Tony Bennett and Perry Como and Andy Williams, and you had female vocalists of the same order, Rosemary Clooney um, and her contemporaries. And the idea of an album then was that you got a, a kind of anthology of hits or important songs that were memorable, that were recognizable by the audience, and the stamp of the, of the vocalist was put on the songs and, the, and if there was a transforming quality, it was that now the songs were held together by a kind of uh, organic interpretation. But this had nothing to do with the meaning of the album. And the album was not making a statement, although it was very common for all the songs of an album that year to be about love, which was the shared topic of songwriting in those days. But since, this, since there would be eight or ten songwriters on a single album, you couldn't think of it as making an organized and accumulated statement. Uh, that, was this, that was the situation after the war in record making, and it lasted really up until the 1963 or 64. And although the Beatles were not the only people breaking the mold, they were the model that produced the idea of an album-long organized statement. And their model became the exemplar for a generation of songwriters who were no longer professional songwriters, Tin Pen Alley uh, professionals, hit makers, who could write for any singer, and whose genius was in part their flexibility. A, a songwriter like Sammy Kahn, or even all the way up to Lieber and Stoller, or, or uh, uh, all the all the uh, Neil Diamond types of the 19, late 50s and early 60s. In that era, the flexibility of the songwriter was such that he had to write for many singers. And he had to be able to make a song for a situation and a hit that was suited in some way to the vocal talent of the singer. Therefore, the songwriter was, in a sense, invisible. He was necessary, he or she was necessary, uh, but, but not... Uh, recognized on the surface, only a very small minority of people who bought records recognized songwriting, even recognized song credit, even though it was marked on both singles and long play albums in the 40s and 50s. But in 1963, 64, 65, there was a great transformation of the record album and of the idea of the album. Now, this transformation was not immediate and it was not completed quickly. It developed, but by the late 60s, it had become a standard idea among a certain class of songwriters that they themselves were making a statement through all the songs of an album, and that the singer-songwriter was represented as a person. Uh, the the singer-songwriter created an ethos as well as an argument in the album. 
Now, this is not true of all the singer-songwriters. It wouldn't be true of Paul Revere and the Raiders or Herman's Hermits. But it was true of a, of a distinguished genus of songwriters of that period, which included Neil Young and Bob Dylan, Cat Stevens, Paul Simon, John Fogarty, Pete Townsend, the songwriting duo of Led Zeppelin, the Velvet Underground, and many other uh, album makers or groups of that era. As I said, the Beatles, as is commonly the case, are the kind of parent example of so many things of that era. And I'm going to make some comments about one of their albums as an example of what I'm talking about here. Now, an album in the 1940s and 50s, usually if it had an, anything that connected the elements, it was something about a sound. So Herb Alpert had a sound. Barbara Streisand had a sound. They, had a, they, they, it, they evinced in all their works a certain kind of talent. And talent was, in, in quotation marks, was kind of the goal. Representing the idea of talent was kind of the goal of the album makers, the producers of the album. And you could see in it an anthology, as it were, without any particular order, of songs that represented the singable material for an important singer. Sinatra being perhaps the most famous for putting a very particular and special mark on each song. So the album represented him as a performer in a very particular, special way. He's almost a transitional figure, he and Elvis. They're almost transitional figures towards the idea of a more organic song-making tradition. But as long as we had the hit parade and the singles chart, which is a very popular idea, in the, in the uh, 40s and 50s, that hit parade was represented by the production of 45 records, single records, with an A side and a B side. And in order for that kind of product to be created, you had to have one memorable song, which was sellable, and, and a less memorable song, but which is interesting and somehow worthy of the first song on the second side. And of course, people own thousands of 45 records. Some people only bought 45 records and never bought LPs. And so that indicated in that world, which lasted until the 70s, that the single song was still, and the idea of talent, and the idea of a hit parade was still existing. And it coexisted for a long time with the new idea of record making. Now, what happens in this later development, the singer-songwriter or singer-songwriter's idea of an album? Well... The structure of the album now becomes organic. The lineup of the songs on the first side is often analogous to a battering lineup in baseball. You know, in baseball, the first hitter is supposed to have speed and be an opportunist who can get on base and maybe move up to second and getting scoring position, but he gets your attention. It's a fast opening. The second batter is a supportive batter who kind of makes real the claims of the first batter. But the third and fourth hitters in the traditional baseball lineup were the ones with power and, and, and real force and the ones that were game changers. And that was also true in albums of the 1960s and 70s. The third and fourth slot tended to be the place where songs of huge importance and centrality to an album or songs that were just thought of as superior in their nature were placed in albums of that era. This was not a rule, but it was a very common fact. So we had the attention grabbing first, the building the effect in the second, and then the central hit or statement of the album in third and fourth song. Often the last song on the first side was a kind of 
was a kind of exceptional trailing song that often took something away from the argument of the first side and was a transition into a problem of the second side. Now, you have to understand that in order to make an album with 12 songs, say, or 14, uh, in which all the songs are interesting, you have to have enormous and unusual talent. Because if you make three or four albums in a year, that means you're creating 40 or 50 songs in a year. And if they're all going to be interesting and form an organic structure on an LP, long play, that is, long play album, well, that means you have to have enormous fecundity and ability to create song after song after song. And that was true for Paul Simon and Fogarty and the Beatles and Dylan. That was part of their character as songwriters, that they could produce around an idea or a statement a huge amount of material. Now, that was also true of the old songwriters in a different way because they were writing for 10 or 12 or 15 different singers. So they had to also have, for a different reason, they had to have a, a tremendous capacity for production. Now... The second side of uh, an album of the old days was often throwaway songs or maybe one song of great interest and a lot of sort of second flight songs because there was always a question of whether people would flip the album at all because there were, there were many records bought in the 40s and 50s and even into the 60s in which you didn't even turn the album over because you knew where all the hits and important songs were. And only the person who really wanted to know all the material in some, in some kind of... Uh, aficionado-style interest really thought of the album as a whole in, in the sense that people later were come to think of it. One of the problems of this album culture was technological. In a, in a vinyl record, you have to drop the needle in order to play only the third song or the fourth song or the fifth side, and the dropping of the needle itself is tricky and sometimes damaging to the record, so there was always a question of who was doing it and why and... and that produced its own logic, the idea of moving the needle by hand. Cassettes changed that because there was forward and backward search on better machines, so therefore the, there was a mobility of searching, and that changed the kind of attitude people had toward the order and presence of songs. And this was changed permanently by the CD, because now you can punch up a number or a song you like on the CD, and it tends to dissolve any significance the order had in the creation of the vinyl LP. And it's the last phase in technology kind of working against the organic nature of the earlier albums. In the same way that the earlier albums had a record cover that was like a small painting, which usually evinced for the, for the listener some idea either of the ethos or the character of the songwriter. So we remember the cover pictures of Rubber Soul or Revolver, for example, in the Beatles, or the famous images in the front of Simon and Garfunkel. And the same might be said of Billy Joel's albums or Neil Young, that they, there's a kind of characteristic message produced. And this is even more so in the pop art of the Rolling Stones albums or Zeppelin. So that, though, indicates that the record as a whole is a kind of organized commodity, which has a kind of meaning. And, the, and, the, and there was even a period where people received prizes for record cover art. And that was something particularly important in, in the period between 1964 and 1975. So, if we look at Rubber Soul, an album of 1966, only two years into the Beatles' history, we can see how this, this possibility of an organic statement existed. And this was probably, uh, as a Beatles album comes, even much more than the album Help, which has its own virtues, it really an organized statement. The album cover showed the kind of 
plasticity of the faces, bending of the Beatles to indicate the malleability of the Beatles characters under the influence of love. And rubber soul is a metaphor for the fact that when you fall in and out of love or when you live through the love story, as it were, you're like a rubber ball or a rubber object that's elastic and bounceable and changeable. And those changes in the lover's persona are the subject of the album. So if we think of the first two songs, Drive My Car opens the British version, which is the version we're talking about. It's the original uh, and the, it implies their intention. The first song was Drive My Car, which is, of course, a McCartney song. It's a, it's a, a song of experiment, of testing the woman. And it turns out that the car driver has no car and no money and no claims, but he's willing to experiment with the lover and getting to know her better. And if you need a driver, you know, okay, we'll, we'll see how we can work it out. Even though there's no foundation, the whole thing was, was, a kind of, was a kind of experiment or test case of love. And he shows tremendous vulnerability in the, in the, in the narration. Norwegian Wood is a second and supporting song, and it's John's statement of the same kind, but though with John's typical violence and edge, which is the thing that so particularly distinguishes him as a songwriter. And in Norwegian Wood, he goes into the, into the chic apartment of a well-to-do professional class woman who's like him in his 20s, and he sees her art and her Norwegian wood, her, her contemporary furniture. And, you know, it's kind of like the paradigms for Ikea, that kind of world. And he sees in her apartment this kind of mod quality and her sophistication. And he's trying to work his way into an amorous relationship with her, and she's resisting because she's very cool and detached. And in the end, she, after he waits her out for many hours, drinking wine and sitting on a rug because there's no real chairs in the room, it's kind of a Japanese decor as a, in a kind of you know, London supermodern apartment. He then sleeps in the bathtub because she separates herself from him and closes her door behind him, and he's left alone. And this produces anger. And in the last line, he says, uh, uh, Norwegian wood, isn't it good? He sets a fire. And, the, and we're supposed to see, either in a humorous, hyper, hyperbolic way or in a serious, ugly way, that he's so irritated by her action towards him and uh, that he's willing to set on fire her super modern and chic furniture. And it's, a, and it's a gesture about his agitation in his relationship with her. In that song, there seems to be also the conflict between the sophisticated, uh, you know, upper bourgeois character and the working class rocker who feels he's being slighted by, by the woman. Uh, so we have these two introductory statements, these two experiments of love, which both in different ways show vulnerability. As we move into three and four, however, uh, you find that the lost soul of the lover who can't find his object and is experimenting becomes very uh, meditative. You won't see me. I'll hide away from you. You won't be able to hurt me. I'll be on my own. And the nowhere man, is the character in the fourth song, legendary song of that era by John Lennon. The nowhere man has no personality. He has no concept of his own fulfillment, his own independence. He has to sort of grasp the situation. He has to be willing to see others, the love object and, and the social world as more real and escape his, his own uh, you know, uh, trap of solitude. But when we get into the middle of the album, in a 14-song album, we find that six and seven are the sudden idealization of love that's realized. Finally, we have 
the word in which Lenin talks about love as this kind of universal object of desire and, and a universal good that enlightens and elevates people wherever, whenever it touches them. And then we have Michelle, which is the more personalized version of a woman now realized in a love affair so perfectly that he's willing to speak French and show his kind of you know, childlike sincerity and love for this idealized woman. So the middle of the album is like a kind of hub of the wheel upon which the whole album turns where love is realized in a more idealistic way, in, both in a general and in a particular sense. However, when we get to 9 and 10, just as we were experimenting and looking for love in the opening and found it in the middle, we start to lose it. And this is where the, this is where the rubber ball begins to bounce in the wrong direction. In Girl, suddenly Lenin questions the lover's uh, intention, her authenticity. Uh, does she understand the male persona? Does she know what it means to work and to live and struggle through life and to try to attain to love? Or is she a vain and empty being who's playing with his emotions and making him look bad among his friends? Similarly, and even more intensely, in the, in the song Follow, I'm looking through you. Here again, John is responded to by Paul, and Paul suddenly discovers the woman's deception. He sees through her deceit. I'm looking through you. Where did you go? I thought I knew you. What did I know? Now it becomes a question of the intention of the lover and whether she ever was honest or whether in the end we see the reality. And when you see through the, the superficial claims of love, you see a lack of authenticity, a lack of certitude. When we get to 11 and 12, there's a switch. It's, almost, it's a kind of uh, a pastoral moment of memory. Wait and in my life are now remembered love time, loves that were perfected in the past but have now been lost or are complete. And they're reflections on the possibility not of a realized love like, like the word or Michelle, but of a remembered love. But in the final songs, 13 and 14, if I needed someone and run for your life, now the lover, far from experimenting and far from even being hurt by the realization of love's transient nature, now the lover is angry and violent and returns to his solitude with a gesture of violent reproach. You better run for your life if you can, little girl. Hide your head in the sand, little girl. Catch you with another man. That's the end. It's like a song of the worst kind of emotions of a song from 1952, suddenly appearing in John Lennon as almost a comical exaggeration of lost love and anger. And if I needed someone, Harrison says in his normal, very remote, impersonal way, which is part of his songwriting style, that I don't need you, but if I did, I might remember you and come back to you, which of course means that I've, I've attained to a kind of solitary happiness, and, and I'm now... I now no longer need the experimental and dangerous attempts that the, uh, that the album began with. So we can see if we listen to this album as a continuous statement that it was an attempt to fulfill the metaphor, the rubber soul metaphor of the title. We also see that, that it's a mixture of effects because drive my car is a kicker. It has enormous energy. It has a kind of esprit de joy that makes you interested in the album. In the same way, Nowhere Man is a kind of central hit song statement of the problem of the album. And you can see in it, hidden below the surface of the organic statement, a kind of return to the first position, second position, third position, fourth position, which I talked about, analogous to a baseball lineup. 
This was to go on in, in, in this era of music into the 70s and almost into the early 80s, into the period it returned as a way of, a way of organizing albums in the new wave period. If I, if I could give you one last example, but I won't explain it in great detail. In 1980, Billy Joel, who's perhaps the most efficient uh, imitator of Beatles music, wrote, made an album called Glass Houses, which is one of his two or three most interesting. In that, he says, if you remember, you may be right is the opening gesture, like Drive My Car, where he's running through town on his motorcycle and making all this energetic gesture and catching attention for the album. And he shows himself as a divided person pursuing love, but being misunderstood. Sometimes a fantasy continues that theme in a more meditative way of whether his love is real or unreal. And this is in the era when he was getting his divorce. And so it's like a, it's like a kind of uh, manipulation of the theme of lost love. But in, this, in the third and fourth position are the two heavy-hitting songs of the album. Don't Ask Me Why, which is the question he's asking, the, what he's saying to the woman, don't ask me the why of our relationship and how to make sense out of it. And Still Rock and Roll to Me, which refers, interestingly, to his going back before his, the era of The Stranger in Glass Houses to the time when he simply wrote rock songs. And he now says, look, I'm the same man I was before. All my complexities are unnecessary. And the simple rock and roll I, I liked in the 50s, I can still recreate. So he makes a musical gesture of stasis in the middle. And those third and fourth songs, of course, are the great hits and central statement of the album. All for Lena kind of is a, a peculiar and eccentric song which fades the whole first side out. And by the time he gets to the second side, he, he has all the kind of old Billy Joel gestures in a new form, including closer to the borderline, which produces the same effect as songs like Pressure in which he's now in a pressure cooker of everyday life and has to try to escape all these choices of woman and career. And he ends through the long night as a tribute to his mother. And we see there a very simple and, and organized ballad that gives a kind of calm ending to an otherwise rather hysterical set of statements in the album. So if we look closely at that album, again, the organization is very self-conscious, very much in the tradition of albums of the 60s, and very much a living part of this tradition of organic record making. So it might be interesting when you listen to the albums of that era and uh, albums of later era, if you could conceive of the idea of the record, the idea of the record, the statement being made and the way it's being organized and manipulated by the songwriters. I, I heard on NPR just the other day that Beyonce, in her most recent album, had decided she would make an organic album and it would make a statement. It would have all these fundamental ideas that had accumulated during her lifetime, and that she would not any longer make hits or dance music. I was quite stunned and shocked by this, but it shows the, the residue of this idea that one wants to make a statement and be serious. And that, of course, is her reflecting back in an era of her childhood, in which albums were, were not so much hits or sounds, but statements. And in her attempt to do so, you can see the enduring tendency of the, of, the, of the rock or pop music star in trying to take on the meditative or explanatory role in culture, which is now so faded.